Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Coming up on this week's show, why you may never play your favorite retro games on your Nintendo Switch. Big Atari VCS news. And we look back on the best of 2019 in retro. This week's show is brought to you by Future Publishing and Beer 52, the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 203, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And great to have you joining us again this week as we have a little celebration on the incredible year that was 2019. Now, looking around the table in front of me now, we have some bleary eyes. It's fair to say, it's late night, it's been a long year, but what a year 2019 has been. It's been crazy. I was counting how many countries I've been to this year, and it's probably been about five or six. And it's been a long time since I've been to that many countries, (laughs) and all of them have been for retro gaming. I was about to say, is he just showing off? Is he just going like... (laughs) No, no, no. These haven't been holidays. These have been uh, great retro events with you guys as well. Yeah, it's been incredible. We've got more of those coming up in uh, 2020 as well, which um, we're already filling up. We're going to be in Ireland in January for Amigra. Yeah, yeah. Um, We booked the Airbnb the other day. Yeah, we're, 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 we'll be heading to the Netherlands at some point as well, yeah. and uh, we also might be heading back to Germany. We'll see yeah. what's going on. But yeah, I mean, this year has been incredible, and we thought this week we'd take an opportunity to have a look back on some of our personal highlights from this show in 2019. Now, every year, this has been a bit of a tradition. We've done it the last couple of years. Definitely not an excuse to have the week off and be lazy. Definitely not. No, it's not a lazy <laughs> clip show at all. Definitely <laughs> isn't one of those. It's a very lot of effort put into it clip show. Because I looked through, you know, I went back to January, and I was like, wow, you know, people that we looked through, and I thought, was that only this year? Because, I mean, this year, actually, we've crammed so much into it. 51 podcasts this year. I had to go, like, back on the website yeah. and look to when we started to pick some of the selection of this, and it was five pages of podcasts. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, that is a lot. And of course, we're now into our 200s as well. It has been an incredible year. So we are going to bring you our favourite bits of the Retro Hour podcast in 2019 in just a bit. Now, before we get into the news this week, there's been some really good stories that we're going to talk about in a moment. Let's give a huge thank you to the people who allow us to come in here week in, week out, at all hours of the day and do this podcast for you every week, let you know what's happening in the world of retro gaming, source out these incredible interviews, bring the podcast to all these places around the world, which we love doing as well, and that is people who find it in their little lovely hearts to make a donation into the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. The last few weeks, Joe's done it. I thought it was test Ravi's knowledge. You might be getting a bit rusty on this. Yeah, sure. how, do you get the, how do you get in the Hall of Fame then, Ravi? Uh, you go to the www.theretrohour.com. He's so old school. <laughs> All the W's. I feel like he's taking the mick out of me a little bit. <laughs> and you click support, and then you can donate in any currency through PayPal, or you can even donate to charity as well, where we have the Retro Computer Museum in Leicester. Really cool guys. But... If you donate with PayPal, you will get mentioned in the Hall of Fame and you can donate in any currency and you can even do reoccurring payments. Yeah, and it all really helps us out, obviously going into a new year as well. Around this time, you're all our subscriptions are due to be renewed, so it will be very useful if you've got a couple of quid kicking around. And uh, this week, let's give a huge thank you to people who've made it into the Hall of Fame. The amazing Gabriel Crow, Kevin Lee, Jeff Owen, 
and Howard Taylor, who all made donations into the running of the podcast. And if you'd like to do the same, you can find it on our website at theretrohour.com. Speaking of big supporters of the show as well, let's give a huge thank you to our favourite publisher, The Incredible Future Publishing. Now, we said on last week's show how many magazines they've done over the years. We've been, we've been pretty much lifelong fans of Future Publishing, you know. They have a huge legacy, yeah. huge history, and, you know, it's all quality. I think my first ever computer magazine I bought was Amiga Shopper back in the day that was one of theirs. You know, that was a really good read. They obviously do so much. Retro Gamer magazine, which we've been talking about a lot recently, that's brought to you by Future Publishing. But they actually have four sister gaming magazines as well. Uh, Stuff like Official PlayStation, Official Xbox, PC Gamer, and the legendary Edge magazine. Now, Edge has been, you know, such a long-established title. And it's really, it was the first kind of serious gamers mag Edge. We did an episode earlier on in the year with Steve Jarrett, didn't we, talking about Edge magazine? Yeah, it was was that period of change in the gaming world where it really stepped up into that kind of adult older study of gamings with edge well kind of you know when the playstation came around and gaming kind of felt like it grew up a bit didn't it when yeah, it felt like it's yeah. teenage years and at the moment edge actually have got a run through of their games of the decade now they're about to uh, step into the the swinging 20s won't be long there uh, PlayStation. the little dance you did there <laughs> the Charleston that was, that was just for you Joe don't Thank tell you. everyone uh, PlayStation Magazine this month have got something really good uh, yeah so they're talking about a game I'm really excited about uh, Marvel's Avengers game uh, PlayStation Magazine talking about that again uh, the Black Widow trailer's just dropped as well so I'm hyped as hell about it and Xbox Magazine has a hand-on with Disintegration, which is a new sci-fi shooter from the co-creators of Halo. And remember, Halo was that title that really blew up the Xbox. Oh, absolutely. It's so, so hype, Halo. Whenever a new Halo release comes around, it's always huge. And PC Gamer, they've got a big preview of this upcoming strategy game, which is called Crusaders Kings 3. So whether it's that kind of industry insight that you want by Edge Magazine or the insider knowledge from official PlayStation or Xbox, there's something for everyone. And also if you are Christmas shopping, maybe even for yourself. I must admit, I've done a fair bit of that over the last couple of weeks. I know. I feel like I need to get my mum to do this for me. Like, <laughs> just, I mean, I keep taking the mick out of her, but this is this is great. Just do this for me for Christmas. Because <laughs> it's how, I mean, you might be the same as me. My missus has been going, what do you want? My mum's been asking me, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. But if then you, you see stuff like this. Yeah. If, if, you, if you need a recommendation for anyone in your family, send them this link. Now, what we want you to do is subscribe with the Retro Hour podcast. We will give you an exclusive offer and save you so much money. You will actually get 83% off. So that means three issues for just £3. That's really cool. Because actually, pound a magazine. Yeah. Now, normally this is £18 in the shops, but if you want to subscribe, all you've got to do is nip onto this website, myfavouritemagazines.co.uk forward slash rhgame. So that is myfavouritemagazines.co.uk forward slash rhgame with our good friends at Future Publishing. Now, before we get into our favourite bits of 2019, I think it's fair to say, even though... Well, actually, you've technically got a Switch that you don't really use that much. You haven't got one. You've been saying all year, I've been I'm going to get a Switch. I've been saying for, yeah, the entire year, oh, I'm going to get a Switch, oh, I'm going to get a Switch. And every week when we come in, I'm going, next week, I'm, that's it, I'm buying it, boys, I'm buying it. Well, now you know what to ask for for Christmas, don't you, Joe? <laughs> <laughs> Just not from me or Ravi. Yeah. Now, oh. actually, <laughs> now, there is a little feature at the moment. Um, there was a pretty good read, actually, on Nintendo Life. I mean, being a Nintendo website, They've kind of done the Switch angle on this, but it applies to a lot more than just the Switch. And the title of it is, it's why you'll never get to play your favourite retro game on your Switch. So what it's talking about is, game. you know, people always say, why don't they release GoldenEye 007? Why don't they do an HD upgrade, that kind of Mm. thing? And one of the reasons that's stopping them doing it officially is that when that game was licensed, the James Bond license was only for like one game. Okay. And it didn't include all these kind of future, you know, they didn't Ah. think that people want to play it 20 years down the line. 
But they're talking about the fact that that is actually becoming more and more of an issue. Because when these deals were done with the original games, and this applies to so many different things, a lot of them had kind of either onboard sponsorship or they're actually a little bit cheeky about it. Right. Now, there was actually <laughs> a few cases where you might be playing a game, for example, and instead of having, you know, for example, I think they use a couple of examples in this article, Foster's or Marlboro Cigarettes, they may have had a logo that looked very similar, but it changed a couple of the yeah. word letters, that kind of thing. And, and you have to remember that junk food and advertising for, like, bad products was in so many titles back then, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's unbelievable. And I can't imagine, like, you know, deals for stuff like Chubba Chubs still kind of um, staying many years later. Well, they're talking here about the fact that Sega were actually sued um, by a tobacco firm, Philip Morris, back in the day, because they had, it was in a Super Monaco GP, there was a Marlboro logo around the edge of the track. It was it was Marlboro or something, I think they put it as, but it looked really similar. And they got sued for, by it, so they had to uh, go in and remove these assets. So what they're saying now is... The fact that these were all done so long ago, even if they were legit, these companies will have no record of doing it anymore. So it creates a problem when you want to re-release these games on your platform. I was just looking at this article, saw one of the screenshots, assumed it was a Terminator game, and then realised it's a game called Mechanised Attack, which was influenced by a popular action horror film in which a robot wears human skin, enemies often reveal cybernetic bodies underneath <laughs> What could that them. be? And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. I mean, so, back, yeah, I get it. <laughs> yeah, well, back then, the video games industry, we've had a lot of musicians on back in the day. And they talk about the fact that they were getting their samples from, you know, songs that were in the charts mm. and that kind of thing. But really, they kind of felt like copyright didn't apply to games then because the gaming industry kind of flew under the radar. Yeah. But now it's becoming a problem when they want to re-release these games and sell but, them again. But also, I think, like, you know, that would be seen as, back then, a, a, a cool thing to put Marlboro in there. I yeah. think people would probably <laughs> not, not want to be sneaking that in nowadays. But just reminds me of those adverts. Uh, uh, what's it called? My doctor smokes Marlboro. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the world's moved on a lot yeah. since uh, those games were out. But they're also making an additional point as well about the fact that a lot of the old assets were not actually saved. And they're kind of saying it was kind of like in the 1930s, you know, when like the movie industry was, you know, really becoming mainstream cinemas and everything, before TV really. They're saying a lot of the time what they'd do then is they'd make a movie they'd wipe it and reuse a film again for another movie. Yeah, or reuse the sets for something else, yeah. Yeah, they saw no value in preserving them. Yeah, you hear about the lost films of the 1920s and 30s, yeah. don't you? So yeah, it applies to games as well, doesn't it? Yeah, well, they're talking about the fact, you know, back in like, you know, the gaming industry is younger, but in the early days of it, a lot of these companies, they didn't think to save the source code or mm. didn't see any value in it, which we are better at these days, yeah. seeing the preservation aspect of it, but they're saying there's so many games out there that the source code's long lost yeah. and will never see re-released again on any platforms sadly. thank god for the fans kind of keeping yeah. this and preserving these things exactly so i mean if you if you really do want a way to play rise of the robots i'm sure you can uh, you can find a way to do it you know <laughs> probably will never get a legal re-release again interesting read though so i'll link that up in our show notes if you want to check it out now tell us about the cyber decks ravi yeah so this is a new trend which is pretty cool actually and uh they're, they're called cyber decks and it's it's interesting these are kind of raspberry pi machines that are based on not laptops, but portable carry computers like you used to have back in the day. So like, like the Commodore 64 SX thing. Yeah, so, so the Commodore 64 SX is one, and I've also got a link next to that, which is the MSX one. So somebody's made this kind of MSX carry case, and it's quite nice to see people not just going, oh, we'll make a laptop, we'll, we'll get this Raspberry Pi and we'll put it in something that's really big with a mechanical <laughs> keyboard, <laughs> clunky, but also harks back to those kind of old days. 
it's cool because I mean they, they were called luggable computers then, weren't they? Because yeah. you know they couldn't really you couldn't sit them on your lap if you ever wanted to have children again. I don't think. But I mean, there's a great video on YouTube. I think it's a Commodore Pet Users Group, and what they do is. They've actually filmed this really nicely, and they'll go in, into their local Starbucks with like Commodore pet computers <laughs> and set them up. You know, everyone's there with the MacBooks and yeah. stuff normally, and it's great the reactions people get. But then a bit later on in the video, all these like parents are in there with the kids, and they're all coming over, and just, all these kids are having to play on the games and stuff on yeah, it. Like, yeah. You know, it's just something a bit different. Well, so. well this is good as well because they're all designed to be bespoke. Yeah. So they're not meant to look like anything that was actually there. They're not like, like I'm building an Amiga laptop. Yeah, That's yeah. going to kind of look a bit like an Amiga. But if I was to do a, a, an Amiga Cyberdeck, it would be a flat piece with a screen there, an offset keyboard, maybe a joystick built into it or some kind of crazy monster. If your MacBook is not hipster enough for you, you can build <laughs> yourself one of these. Now, actually, speaking of 2019 being an incredible year, you might remember at the start of the year, um, we had a, a really interesting guest on. We're talking about this game called uh, Retro Mania Wrestling, who supported us for a month back in January. Now, at the time, we're talking about this game, the fact that it was a spiritual successor and kind of a love story to the classic 1991 arcade game, WWF WrestleFest, which, incidentally, I was playing at Arcade Club in Leeds the other week. Got absolutely tranced by my mate Paul, so <laughs> we'll put that aside now. But now it turns out that WrestleMania Wrestling is officially the sequel to WrestleFest. Yeah, so WrestleFest was a great game, but as we know, that was WWE or WWF. Yeah. Well, they haven't got the license for that, but they are the second part of it. So they do have a license for a, a really cool, actually, uh, very popular new wrestling association which is called the national wrestling association and actually i'm on a podcast called remotely interested yeah. and we talked to billy corgan of the smashing pumpkins who's actually involved with nwa <laughs> right, which okay. is really cool so you know there's he may be a a, a playable character you never know <laughs> but they've actually got all these guys from the roster and now it turns out, I mean, Arc System were the company that owned the original WrestleFest license, even though, you know, WWF were attached to it originally. Yeah. They're nothing to do with it anymore. So, I mean, this uh, company that now own the trademark on WrestleFest have allowed them to have the, the license to officially make this a sequel as well, which I think is incredible. So if you're a big fan of that, I mean, we, we'll actually link up in our show notes the latest trailer. I mean, looking at it, it was so heavily inspired by WrestleFest anyway. It really oh, yeah. felt like it. So I think it's incredible that um, RetroSoft Studios have got that license now as well. And uh, so that's what they always wanted. You know, and and it's kind of a lost genre, those old yeah. school wrestling games. I used to really love them. Yeah, yeah, you used to get so many of them, like, you know, the snares and Mega Drive and stuff, and obviously in the arcade. You just don't see anything like that anymore. So it's real, real refreshing to see that. It does look incredible, though. And it is a modern game. I mean, you know... <laughs> I think it's going to be incredibly popular because I've heard a lot of chatter about this from loads of different people going, oh, this looks so good. Have you seen this? You know. Now let's talk about something that's been one of the biggest, is it, isn't it, stories of 2019. Would this be the VCS by any chance? This might be the uh, Atari VCS console. Now, every time we mention this, we kind of have to do a little recap. I mean, this is a new console using the name Atari VCS that is apparently going to be out next year that is going to play modern games. And that's what we know about it so far. However, a lot of people, there's been a lot of negative press about it this year, it's there, fair to there, say. There, I'd say there was a lot of negative press and there was quite a few people that wanted to see it go yeah. down. And cause, because it raised so much in the um, Kickstarter at the beginning as well, but also because we hadn't seen anything. Like, they hadn't shown any of the internals of it. They hadn't shown us stuff until about a month ago 
when we saw the motherboard and yeah. we saw some other pieces say, come you, out. You'd literally see like a mold, like the cast of a mold, and you yeah. start yeah. seeing the motherboard and stuff. But we're seeing a little bit more now, aren't we? Well, but, we're seeing a lot more now. We're yeah. actually seeing them coming out of the production line at the factory in China. And oh my God, how many units are there? <laughs> One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Yeah, it's, I mean, there's oh, actually pallets full of them here. Yeah, yeah we got we got a picture of six units, seven units. So so well done, guys. Well, you know, yeah. you know, it, it sounds like it's been a hard struggle, but I'm really glad that you've got this far. You know, and you know, a lot of the um, negative press mainly came from the register, um, and a lot of the forums and stuff. I understand as well, but I, I think. It is cool that they've now actually shown this mm. and it kind of shuts up all the haters. I mean, it probably won't shut all the haters up, but I think it does definitely help. I actually know somebody who's got one of these oh. as well, so I can confirm yeah. that it does run yeah. and it, it is actually a real thing. And apparently we're going to get this now March next year? Uh, yeah, March 2020. So they were basically going to release it this Christmas, but yeah. they've uh, released these photos and put it back. But, you know, it, it sounds good and um, they've said that the processor, the upgrade in the processor was the actual reason for delay. Mm-hmm. So it's based on an AMD Ryzen chip, but they wanted to put um, a little upgrade in there, I think. so. Well, they do have a Medium blog, which you know, I think is good. They're actually now communicating with backers and fans a lot more. Um, so if you want to read more about it, I know they're updating that quite regularly now. And you know, I actually think doing something like this, it's not an easy job. Launching a completely new platform making all this hardware, you're going to make mistakes along the way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, okay, the retro community has been burnt by projects in the past, but I think to tarnish everyone with the same brush, it's not really fair. You've got to understand that, yeah, okay, they are going to make mistakes, but now this looks like it is going to be a real product. You know, you know I think this is really interesting. We saw the Amico last week yeah, yeah, with yeah. titles, a new controller, and I don't know how that's going to perform at all, but it's a new machine. Yeah. And VCS, we've seen a, a new machine, and... I don't know how the hell that's going to perform either. I think you know? for me, the key thing is, obviously Ravi's right, we don't know how they're going to perform and stuff. But I think for me, yes, we've been burned and everything in the past. I know I'm really, really, really pessimistic about these You, things. Joe. I know, gosh. But I think what I like is when they own it. You know, they yeah. turn around and they've said, yeah, you know what? It's going to be March 2020. Fine. Yeah. That, mm-hmm. It is what it is. And they've given a reason why yeah, as well. And they've given, you know, and they've given us a reason. One, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, fair enough. And it does says it supports video streaming, which is more than the Switch did at launch. (laughs) (laughs) You know what, though? If if somebody had told you, in 2020, you'd be able to buy a new Intellivision and Atari VCS console like 10 years ago, you'd be like, what? It's cool. It's a mini console. (laughs) It is cool to see these brands coming back, though, so we'll be keeping a a very keen eye on that one. Have you got a spare seven and a half grand kicking around, anyone? Uh, Yeah, uh, me and Ravi, actually, pulled together recently. (laughs) Uh, To buy this disc. (laughs) To buy this disc, signed by Steve Jobs. No, we didn't really, we didn't really. So the the secret here... I rubbed that signature off. Oh, bloody hell. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was a graffiti. (laughs) Well, this is an incredibly rare, because doesn't every auction have to have that written at the top of them on eBay. It's a floppy disc signed by Steve Jobs that has been valued at $7,500. Now, looking at this, this is a double-sided, double-density floppy disk uh, for the original Macintosh, the Macintosh System Tools disk, version... 6.0. Signed by Steve Jobs in... A biro, by the looks of it, in the middle of the display. Yeah, it's yeah. a black felt pen. Okay, well, they, <laughs> Ooh, that adds another two grand on. <laughs> but, I mean, you wouldn't think... Most people just throwing floppy disks away because they don't really think they're worth that much anymore, old media. But, it's a save icon. <laughs> yeah, 3D printed save icon. But having Steve Jobs' signature on there obviously gives us a lot of value. Yeah, and I think it's, it, I guess, because it's not just on a piece of paper, yeah. on a napkin, it's, you know, on 
floppy disk. It's Steve Jobs' floppy disk. But what I think is quite interesting is it has actually, at the point of us recording this, there's been seven bids on it, and it's on $4,600. Already, and they expect it to go higher. Yeah. The it's useless for us, Dan, though, because it's double density, so um, we'd have to reformat it and lose a lot of the space. <laughs> <laughs> and just imagine you're doing something like that, buying it, then one day you're going through your drawer, I need the disc on yeah. <laughs> putting a label over the top of it. It is crazy, though, that, you know, this kind of what would have been classed as junk a couple of decades ago yeah. and now commanding these kind of fees. It makes you feel like every new kind of game or whatever you get, you should just, you know, email a developer like, would you mind signing that for me? And like, Just do it. Yeah. yeah. So actually, speaking of, Ravi's Amiga. You're Amiga 1200. Yeah. This could be you in like 20 years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. signed by it's, how many people? It, I've had it signed by lots of people. Yeah. And for me, the the greatest signature is Ben Douglish. And having that, because he's yeah, yeah. he's now passed away. And just to have his signature, every time I DJ, I look at it and I'm like, yes, Ben. It's you'd, great. You'd never sell it though, would you? Oh, no. No, no not So I, I, I go to like... Like a Viking, when I die, I'll have a ship with all my Amigas on it, like Valhalla. Just float you off into jo- the middle Join sea. me in the afterlife. Yeah. Now, actually, speaking of the afterlife, what a terrible segue into this. Uh, Ghosts and Demons. Now, this is a game. You know, back in the day, there was always some games that I'd kind of make a beeline for when I went into the arcades, even though I was utterly terrible at it. Ghosts and Goblins, or Ghouls and Ghosts, I'd always want to play those games. Yeah. I was drawing the atmosphere, I thought, that looks so cool. The- I generally last about 30 seconds on yeah. each one. So, I just wanted to get this out here. It's a true story. Yeah. Somehow, I did complete Ghosts and Goblins get when I was about here. 17, get out both of town. times through. <laughs> and now I go back to it, and I'm like, nope, can't even get 10 minutes into it. But yeah, there's been... Is this a spiritual successor? Well, this is a fan-made game. Yeah. It's actually been around a few years. Okay. Um, it came around for the 30th anniversary of the game in 2015. So, I mean, it's been oh, around okay. nearly five years now. The reason we're talking about it is, I mean, number one, I didn't come across it before. Okay. <laughs> it actually looks really cool. But they've actually released an update, version 1.8, that came out last week. So, what it is, it's a 30th anniversary fan game, a tribute to the the Ghosts and Goblins series, yeah. if you like. It's set at the end. Again, you've got Sir Arthur. He's got to get through all the zombies and evil forces and rescue the princess. The old story in the old game. But they've actually got some really cool sound effects in here. Stunning pixel art. Beautiful pixel art on it as mm. well. And there's some kind of new moves and stuff you can do too. If you check out the trailer, um, Ghosts and Demons trailer, it does look like it's every bit as hard as the original game. Check out the sound effects as well. It is really, really funny looking. And, yeah, I mean, you can download this. What's great about it is, you know, you pick your own price. It's one of these games. It's kind of like the modern version of Shareware, really, isn't it? If you like it, throw a couple of quid and give it a download. Available for a PC and Mac, I believe, at the moment. So you need a computer to play it on. But, yeah, if you want a bit of a challenge, I always found those games so hard back in the day. And uh, I know I'm going to get absolutely beaten by this the minute I download it. So uh, definitely worth a look. If you want to check out that and anything else we talked about in this week's show, I'll put them in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, before we get into our interview, time for our Retro Picks of the Week. What have you been looking at this week, Ravi? So, this is really cool. This is uh, the Back Office show, which is Dr. Andrew Armstrong. Now, what he does is he creates little hardware interfaces, and he does them for the Atari ST and the STE. Now, there's some really cool little pieces on here. He's got a Atari ST cartridge shot slot right. USB. So you put it into the cartridge slot. You can have your USBs. Uh, he's also got RetroNet version 2, which is basically a Wi-Fi module for the Atari ST that you can stick on the back. He's got uh, interfaces for the Ultimate Joystick. And there's loads of cool little things here. So check out backofficeshow.com. So they sell like a little shopping and buy all this stuff from you. Yeah, yeah. Okay. 
And he said he'll restock it when I mention him on the show so that it doesn't get sold out. <laughs> it probably need to now. Yeah. The power of the retro AR. <laughs> now, I'm going to talk about a Telnet BBS guide this week because, I mean, I've been messing around again with it. You know what I'm like? You've been I mean, on Telnet. I mean, I'm I mean, I got a tell or a bulletin board open, you know, I just get addicted to it. And if you want to mess around with your old machines, again, I mean, it's always a bit of a hobby of mine, kind of getting my old computers online. For some reason, I've got these Wi-Fi modules for every machine, pretty much. Just the thrill of getting them connected to other machines. Have you run the Star Wars game for uh, yes. Star Wars film through <laughs> Telnet? Yeah. yeah, press it, all the little ASCII art and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it is amazing. Well, this is, I mean, if you do get the stage where you get your old machines online, you think, and what can I connect to? Really good website here called telnetbbsguide.com. It essentially lists all the active bulletin boards that you can Telnet into. And you can even, if you really want to try them out, like right now or at work, mess around with them. They've actually got a web interface as well. Yeah, just open your command line on the PC and type in Telnet and then you'll be able to straight or, away do it. Or you can yeah. do them through their, their website. Oh, even the, that. Yeah, yeah. Telnet client in the browser, so um, definitely worth a look if you're into the old uh, the BBS scene or you want to check it out, telnetbbsguide.com. And this week, you've been checking out my good friend Kieran, Laird's Lair. Yeah, so I've been uh, checking out Laird's Lair. Um, I'd never heard of him myself. Yeah, I am. Um, in, his videos just came up on YouTube a couple of nights ago, just, you know, oh, you know, you watch these guys, why not watch this guy and I was just like, yeah, okay, I'll you know give it a shot. I chucked it in the show in the show notes uh, to Dan, and Dan was like, oh, I know him. He's he's a friend of mine. So mm. I was like, oh, brilliant. So um, he does some really really interesting like episodes, like kind of not like what ifs, but you know you know technologies that didn't come out. But the video that stuck out for me was the story of the unreleased SNK console, the Neo Star. I found that really interesting. Uh, just finding out a little bit more about what SNK were doing because he kind of goes into the history of, uh, you know, the two that did come out, uh, the CD and the, what's it called, the MVS, I think it's called. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he just, you know, he talks about them a little bit and then talks about the successes that ne- kind of never came um, and the updates that never came. And I just found it really, really interesting. So check them out if you just want to know a little, you know, a lot more about consoles that never came to fruition, if that makes sense. Yeah, he does a lot of those kind of like unreleased and beta yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah. I watched one he was doing like the story of the, the Atari Jaguar 2 that never came out, yeah. the Sega Saturn 2. The Atari, oh, what was it called? There's one of like, the, uh, the, the CD-ROM he did as well, yeah. which was weird though, because I was reading, I actually found an old issue of Atari ST user magazine yeah. randomly when I was cleaning out my garage. And I owned it, and it was actually a feature in there about this CD-ROM drive for the Atari ST that, you know, they were meant to come out. I don't think I ever did. Mm. And the next day, I saw he posted a video about it, and I was like, what are the chances Ooh. of that? Really <laughs> weird. So, I mean, it's, yeah, it's a really good channel if you're into that kind of, yeah, kind of what-ifs and yeah. a lot of these kind of in-depth looks. at Led's Lair on YouTube, and, of course, we'll link that up in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, have we got any Christmas parties coming up over the next couple of weeks? Sorry, girls, aren't we? Yeah, so the guys are coming over to mine next Saturday. Yep. And then we're going over to Ravi's the week after. And we're going to actually, well, I'm going to try and live stream it, but if it's not live streamed, I'll pre record it and then put it out. Yeah, okay, so. yeah, yeah. This is a time of year when we're all in party mood now. We're coming up to Christmas. I'm going to say some words that are going to sound absolutely magical to your ears. What about this? Free beer. Ooh. Look at Joe's little face. Look there at it like that. That makes Christmas a lot easier. <laughs> now, this is thanks to our amazing friends who've supported this week's episode of the Retro Hour podcast, Beer 52. Now, we love Beer 52. They are the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. And we've got a very special Christmas offer on for you. Now, thanks to our friends at beer52.com. Normally, we give the opportunity to sip 
eight exclusive free beers from around the world. It lasts me quite a while, you know. You've, you've had one of these before, Yeah, yeah, you? when yeah. I've got the cases, it's lasted me quite a while, eight of them, so I can't believe the deal today. <laughs> uh... Well, because it's Christmas and, you know, Beer 52 are feeling really generous, they're going to throw in two extra free beers. So that is a total of ten free beers. Now, all you have to do is cover the postage, £4.95, and you'll get ten beers. And claim this by December 17th if you want it in time for Christmas. Now, if you're not familiar with Beer 52, they're beer pioneers. What they do is they look around the world to find the best and most inspiring beer from the greatest small batch breweries. So, I mean, it does mean that they're the most popular beer discovery club in the world. And they've included stuff like, uh, you know, themes like German beer, Norwegian beer, Californian beers. And, of course, you know, being from the UK, they're really passionate about the UK craft beer scene as well. And they don't hold you a ransom. There's no lock-in. You can leave at any time. And what's more... They also let you pick your boxes as well. Like, Rav, you're a fan of like the light beers, aren't you? Yeah, I like the IPAs and yeah, stuff. Yeah. And there was some quite nice pale ales. And actually, there's there's quite a few exciting ones. And I was like, oh, this mango milkshake. Let's try it. Yeah, it was like lilt. It right. was well nice. Yeah. <laughs> and also, they'll give you a craft beer magazine called Ferment, which I didn't know how interesting craft beers were until I got this really interesting read. And it's going to make your eyes light up as well. A cheeky little snack. Yeah, Including. cheeky little snack, little bag of port scratchings, little bag of popcorn or something <laughs> like it. that. Well, there's your weekend sorted. So you're going to get 10 free beers, you're going to get a snack, and you can sit down and play retro games while listening to the Retro Hour podcast. Does that sound like the perfect weekend before Christmas? That sounds Christmas? pretty perfect. Head to beer52.com forward slash retro, cover just £4.95 for postage, and you'll get 10 beers for free. Beer52.com forward slash retro with our good friends from Beer52. Right then, time to get into our little look back on the year that was... 2019. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast now. It's time to have a look back on the year 2019. It's unbelievable, you know, the kind of variety of guests we've had, but also the events that we've done. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through, it's going to be Ravi and Dan selecting them at the moment, and Joe's going to add in some commentary about them as well. <laughs> or nod and smile. It's because I'm like, <laughs> often with the interviews, I, I sometimes get involved, but I'm, I like I feel like I'm the producer at the side, like just listening along. Yeah, give yourself you know? a fancy title, just Joe. Like, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm going to have to make myself sound a bit I've got a, a close friend of mine who listens every week. Give, give him a shout. And uh, I'm giving him, no, he says it'll weird him out if I gave him I forgot uh, his name, you tell me. <laughs> and he always says like, oh, you know, Utah Saints. He's like, that was a great interview. Actually, I was there, mate. Like, I just, I just, I was, I was sat at the side. I just didn't ask any questions. He's like, oh, and I was like, yeah, that happens a lot, actually. Like, I am there. Like, no, they so. don't want to get you involved or anything. It's like, like you said, producer, producer's producer. Producer. Uh, but this year, I mean, this was one that you missed that we're going to start off with because um, you were, it was actually your birthday. And you were away in Tokyo for I your was, birthday. I was. Checking out retro gaming fairs, which, you know, great place to be. But Norway was brilliant as well. Now, Ravi and I went to a really good event. First time we've been there. Retro Spill Messen. Yeah, so this was in uh, Sandiford, Norway, and we went out there with the Rare Crew. Now, we don't talk that much Nintendo on this podcast, just because it's hard to get guys on. But Rare being that kind of unique British Nintendo company... We love talking to him. Yeah, they were first-party developer for Rare back in the day. Now, we're joined on a panel by David Doak, um, who worked on GoldenEye, Chris Marlowe, Sean Pyle, Conker's Bad Fur Day, David Wise, who's on Donkey Kong Country, Kevin Bayliss, who's on Battletoads and Killer Instinct. And you remember they had that thing where, particularly Donkey Kong Country, where it's a SNES game, but the kind of 3D rendered graphics. Yeah. And at the time, it like, how on earth have they done that? Turned out they used some very expensive silicon graphics workstations. And we got a great story from the guys about the time that Rare... Use these SGI workstations. 
Let's talk about Donkey Kong Country. I mean, that was a huge game on the Super Nintendo. Um, over 8 million copies sold worldwide. It seemed like a next-gen game. So I remember the adverts, were like, it's not 64-bit, it's not 32-bit. And you use that really impressive technique of doing pre-rendered 3D graphics. So that was called Advanced Computer Modeling. Explain a bit about what that was and what, where that idea came from. Advanced Computer Modeling. We had a lot of these acronyms, didn't we? Um, were there any more? Rare Dynamic Animation. Yeah. That was the next one. RDA. Um, whereas before we'd draw the character on paper and we'd pixelate it and then we moved on from pixelating it and decoding it to having an actual editor which was like um, using I guess a very very primitive version of Photoshop um, it was all 2D we, we invested in the 3D uh, software which was called Power Animator at the time it's now it's evolved since then and it's now called Maya or Maya so you'd build a wireframe model and the computer would generate, uh, it would transfer all of these curves into tiny, tiny triangles and, and the light would hit all of the squares and triangles and it'd create a, a solid shape. And we'd point a camera at it and the camera then makes a rendered image of uh, a 3D ape or a 3D collection of shapes to resemble an ape. We'd move them around and as soon as the light was hitting it and, it, and the shadows would appear, it looked very solid and so... Those were then 2D images, which we would have a, an alpha channel, so there was a mask around it, and it, it became a sprite. And so we just lay those sprites, played them as animation, and basically you'd got a, a small film show of everything that you were making in 3D. And it, it did, it looked like it, it was actually real-time rendering, but it, of course it wasn't, it was all sprites. This was one of the incredible things that uh, Chris and Tim, they, they made a real leap of faith and they invested heavily not only in the new the latest software but also the latest hardware all the indies and things that the all the sgi machines silicon graphics that um these machines were hugely expensive and they were quite rare and literally the only place that had more uh, of these machines was Pixar, which were doing a little thing called toy story at the time so whilst they were developing toy story we were doing the um this the same rendering technique uh, and turning it into video games and uh, one quite funny story is that uh, at one point the Ministry of Defence had to contact Rare to say why do you have all these these basically supercomputers all sitting what is that you're in, building in your in basically bar? like a, a bunker <laughs> a secret lair in the middle of the countryside are you planning to try and take over a third world country and it was going no we're actually making video games and that it's, it's interesting that because I, I was at the time I was uh, doing postgrad so I, I was doing science research um, and my field was molecular modelling so the in the in the lab where I worked, I used silicon graphics to look at molecular models, and 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 then as part of my job, I, I looked after the other silicon graphics machines around in in, in 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 the building. So in this quite well funded, it was Oxford Centre for Molecular Sciences, internationally recognised, funded, you know, cutting edge research institute. Um, I think we had about uh, over the whole site there was that I was responsible for. There were probably about I don't know half a dozen eight. SG machines, and they were, the, and they were the fairly cheap ones. So the cheap ones came in at about twenty, twenty-five thousand pounds each. And I went to Rare to look after. So like, yeah, that's right. And the software. So the, a, a license for Maya was like six k a year, or what was Power Animator at the time, wasn't it? Yeah. So but when I went to Rare, and I got the job at Rare because I knew how to look after silicon graphics machines. And when I turned up, kind of day one, it's like, well, yeah, how many are there to look after? So well, basically, all the artists have one. 
So there's like, I don't know, there's probably about, I don't know, like 30 or something around the place. And we've got, we've got those big ones, the ones that look like big blue fridges that cost like, you know, two million or something. We've got a couple of those. And we've got, and we've got these other ones. And they had amazing names like Death yeah, Star. Yesterday I mentioned the Death Star yesterday. The Death Star, yeah, the Death, Death Star, Star. And then there was Jabba and stuff. But it was great. I mean, it's like, so these guys had, like, you know, in, in, in research, in, in, in a top institution, they didn't have the money to buy these things, but Rare was just full of them. So that was such a good panel. If you want to check out the full thing recorded at Retro Spill Messen, loads more incredible anecdotes like that about the inside story of Rare. I'll put a link to that episode and every other one that we mentioned. And you can check it on YouTube as you well. You can. The full video's up there as well. I'll put it all at theretrohour.com. Now, Robbie Back, he was an interesting guy. Yeah, so Robbie Back, like, we've talked to people in Microsoft about the Xbox before and we've had Ed Fry's on. Robbie Back was the president of entertainment and devices which yeah. was really awesome. And he talks about a moment which probably changed all of our lives, but we never think about how much September the 11th changed the gaming world. And this is Robbie's experience, amazing experience, of the launch of the Xbox and how it was nearly destroyed by September the 11th. I mean, around that time, the whole world changed because obviously um, 9-11 happened around then too. I mean, that obviously delayed the launch of the Xbox, didn't it? And I know you guys had like uh, quite an epic road trip to get across America. Yeah, that had a a lasting impact on me. I mean, I literally flew into New York the morning of 9-11. I landed about 6 a.m. on a red eye from Seattle. Wow. And I took a cab to the hotel at the Marriott in, on, uh, in Times Square Went up to my room and caught two or three hours of sleep. I woke up, I don't know, it was probably 9.30. And I got a call from the lawyer at our PR agency. I was there for a press tour. And I got a call from our lawyer at PR agency telling me that, uh, hey, I know your press tour has been canceled. If there's any way I can help, our offices are across the street. Just let me know. And I didn't know what he was talking about. And I had to turn on the television to see 9-11 happening in front of me. And then I was able to go to the window and look down and you could see some of the smoke rising above the buildings. And we did then there was a, a dash to figure out how you could get home and you wanted to be with your family and be with your loved ones. And they were worried about you. They knew we were in New York. They couldn't call my cell phone because the cell tower had been knocked down. Um, we were communicating by pager. I had a, a um, BlackBerry pager. So we were sending text messages on a BlackBerry pager. We got a group of four people together and we got in a Ford Taurus and we drove across the country. And I write about that in my in the book Xbox Revisited, but I'm I'm just finishing a second book and I'm I'm writing about it again. It's it had a lasting impact on me, and I think it changed our country forever in uh, some good ways and and unfortunately mostly in some bad ways. Well, you met um, a really nice GameStop employee on the road trip um, with uh, all the Microsoft stand displaying. He must have been happy to see you when you when you turned up. <laughs> that's a that's a great story. We're in Mount Rushmore Mall in uh, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, uh, or is it uh, Sioux, I, I think it's Sioux Falls. Anyway, uh, it's in the west part of South Dakota. And uh, we go into the Mount Rushmore Wall because we're, we're going to get some food. And we had to buy pillows because we decided we we're going to drive through the night. And there's a software, et cetera. It wasn't even, you know, this is when this was before uh, uh, EB Games. Uh, an electronic boutique. It was a software, et cetera, at the time. And they had all the Xbox materials up waiting for the launch. And we walked in, the guy's name's Derek Barnes, and we chatted with Derek. We took pictures. I have the pictures with Derek. Derek and I have stayed in touch. I exchanged email with him about a year ago. 
Um, I was doing a speech down in Florida and he was almost able to come to the speech, but we've, we've stayed in touch. You know, he was working there. He ended up working in it. He's gone on to have a family and, um, you know, it's just one of those personal connections you make that, uh, last for a lifetime. Well, I hear when the um, Times Square launch happened, it was it was still quite in America. You know, they were quite high with security and stuff. And uh, Bill Gates was actually out there, kind of playing games with fans and uh, promoting it. We did have a lot of security stuff that we had to do, but having said that, you know, if you get to know Bill, I mean, he pays attention to security because he has to, and he's careful. Once he had a family, you know, he was he got very careful, but. You know, his view was, hey, this is what I need to do. And, you know, I'm not going to not do it because there's bad people in the world. That's just not the way we do things. And so we did a that was really the first big thing in Times Square after 9-11. And that Toys R Us was brand new. It used to be an old movie theater. Um, It was the first event at that Toys R Us. Um, And, you know, we were able to light up Times Square, which was you know quite cool. And again, you know, only three months after 9-11, so for me, quite emotional. As you can hear from that, it's just amazing to hear about Bill Gates running around Times Square <laughs> know, yeah. trying to flog Xboxes. <laughs> it's just uh, absolutely amazing. And, you know, you kind of think about how much that changed the game industry, how many games were cancelled because yeah. of that, how many games were delayed, how many films were cancelled. It's crazy, really. Really did have a far-reaching impact, didn't it? So you want to check out the full chat with Robbie back. That was episode 154 of the Retro Hour. Now, back in the summer, uh, this is when you're off on your travels. Joe and I were in, and I, I spoke to a guy who wrote a book that I just randomly picked up, and I was reading about this incredible system. And I remember thinking... This just sounds like too good to be real. It can't this be was true. like Dan's special episode. This was because I I was like <laughs> <Dan's> away. Special <laughs> episode. <laughs> no, but I was away, and I was like, Dan's like, oh, can I do this episode on this small system called Plato? Yeah. And then he released it, and it it just blew up. It was amazing. It was one of our biggest episodes of the year. Now this was with Brian Deer. Um, this was, I mean, I titled the episode "The Greatest Computer Network You've Never Heard Of," and he wrote a book called "The Friendly Orange Glow." And this was, it was a system that kind of birthed cyberculture and online gaming. But it did all this back in like the early 70s, I think the late 60s actually. So many technologies were invented on Plato. But there's one great little story that he told, because obviously this is kind of a university system. A lot of students worked in it, computer science students who, you know, to be fair, probably a little bit nerdy, big fans of Star Trek. And then one day, one of their celebrity guests came in, who was Leonard Nimoy. Of course, Spock from Star Trek, who, as we know in the show, Spock is like the world's greatest chess player of the universes. It's logical. Turns out, not so much in real life. Well, there is one really funny chapter of your book (laughs) talking about um, Empire, kind of following on from that. I mean, you said it was based on Star Trek, and Leonard Nimoy, Spock, actually got to see Empire and and Plato. So what happened there is, uh, you know, after Star Trek, um, Nimoy was kind of typecast and had difficulty getting other roles and uh, because he was so immediately, the only thing missing were the pointing ears. And, um, but, you know, Nimoy was Spock and he hated it. And so he decided to go and do stage uh, acting for a long time. And he went around the country and did all kinds of roles. Um, One flew over the cuckoo's nest and, you know, uh, all kinds of famous Broadway shows and everything. And he typically was the star, of course. And, you know, he wanted to show that he's a real actor and that, that the you know, because the Star Trek thing had 
just really kind of ruined his career in a way. In 1974, he happened to be playing uh, the lead role in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest at a tiny little but very popular theater in a um, tiny town in the middle of nowhere in central Illinois. And it was about an hour away from Champaign-Urbana. And so, you know, since Champaign-Urbana was the biggest town around, one day uh, to promote his new play, he came and did a media day with, you know, meeting with television and reporters and things like that. Somehow, the University of Illinois and the Plato Lab heard that he was in town. And so that got added to his itinerary. So he was invited to come and get a tour of what was called the Computer-Based Education Research Lab, which was this funky brick old building, which was the birthplace and home of Plato. And uh, he got a tour of, of the different floors of the building and was invited up to the penthouse where all the cool kids hung out. And that's where they uh, did music programming and of course, everyone had a terminal on their desk and they showed Nimoy Empire and uh, three-dimensional chess, you know, and, and, and what was really funny, I, I spoke to a lot of people who remember the Leonard Nimoy visit. I would be bringing it up to these people who had not heard about it for 30 or 40 years. And the first thing they would tell me is like, oh, he was drunk or he, he smelled of alcohol. And even Don Bitzer remembered it, it that way. It was it was it was really funny. That was the first thing he thought too, when you know. And so, if you were a diehard Star Trek fan and you were 17 or 18 years old, and in walks Leonard Nimoy to your office at at the Plato Lab, you know, first of all, you're in complete awe, but then you're in shock because he doesn't have his ears. He's not wearing his Federation, you know, blue and black uniform. He doesn't have the boots on, you know, and, and all the rest. He doesn't have the weird haircut. And um, it's it's not Spock, but it is. And here was Leonard Nimoy with a scruffy beard, wearing glasses, and just a regular guy. And um, so that kind of drove the Plato people crazy. And then they discovered he confessed when they showed him this gorgeous chess game that that was on full graphics of, you know, there, there were knights and rooks and kings and queens and pawns, and it was all graphically rendered. And you could play against the computer, and the computer was wicked smart. Nimoy looked at it, and it's like, you know, he had to confess that he didn't know how to play chess. And that just devastated the Star Trek fans in the room because, you know, you're Spock. You're, you, you're like the greatest chess player of all. You, so it was this gigantic disconnect between the fans and the actor. And it was just really, really funny. Now, while Ravi was on his travels and I was recording my special episode about Plato, uh, you're actually chatting to a company in Brazil. Now, this is Tech Toy. Now, we often talk about on the show, you know, how... We're big fans of Sega, particularly you, Joe, you know, our resident Sega fanboy. I know, I am the resident Sega fanboy. I thought this was a great episode. Uh, so it was really interesting to see that essentially the Master System is like the best-selling console in Brazil. Yeah. Uh, coming from a company, quite a big company in Brazil, Tech Toy. They, they do make, like, toys, like, as we know them for, you know, little boys and little girls and stuff. But they they have the rights to the Master System and the Mega Drive, I believe. Yeah, and they even have their own versions. Like, I think it's up to Master System 4. Right. And they've got, like, a portable one as well. They have a Mega Drive 3 or something like that. It's crazy. But um, we're going to go to the alternate world of Brazil where Sega still dominates, and we're going to talk about 
banking on the Mega Drive and how that turned into SegaNet and then kind of turned into online play with low latency. Well, you, you mentioned that you know the machines in and out and uh, kind of you guys offered uh, online banking uh, on and uh, MegaNet as well. So uh, SegaNet, you had a second version of that. So you'd be able to do online banking on your Mega Drive? Yeah, this was amazing. We have one bank here in Brazil, which is called Bradesco. It's a huge bank, really big. And, uh, uh, well, th- this is 1994, right? In 93, uh, yeah, 93, we introduced it. So in 93, uh, online banking was quite different what it was today, you have to imagine. And um, the problem in Brazil that you had a state monopoly of monopoly of the the telephone lines. So the telephone lines were very, very expensive. So something they could, in money of today, I would guess something like, uh, I don't know, 6,000 pounds, something like that for one telephone line. So the bank had a big problem because it was quite expensive for them uh, to have customer service and and, uh, because of the huge investment in all those lines. And we developed a system through Mega Drive that would talk uh, to the bank for 16 seconds, right? So with your Mega Drive, uh, uh, when you contact the computer on the bank, in 16 seconds, we would download all the information and then you would continue offline. And the, the bank simply, simply loved it because the, the, any contact they had with the consumers at that time was like, I don't know, five minutes in, in average, something like that. And we changed this to 16 seconds, right? So they loved the idea and we sold a ton of those uh, uh, banking units uh, because of the of the help of the bank, and also they had a fantastic ne- technology because uh, they were most of the lines in Brazil uh, they were not digital at that time; they were analogic. So you can imagine it was it, it was really tough, but they had excellent technology. And while developing this technology with this bank, we came up with the MegaNet. And with the MegaNet, you could play head-to-head uh, with very low latency. I love the fact that Sega is still like king over there. That's it's, a reason it, to go It's still it. alive. <laughs> now, another great interview that we did back in the summer. This was Bruce Everest. Now, Bruce, I mean, we did get a lot of tweets after that episode going, blimey, he doesn't hold back, does he? And I love it when we have guests like that. Or like, you know, all this stuff happened years ago. It's going to be no holes barred, warts and all. I'm going to tell you everything about it. And this was the story of Imagine Software. Now, there's a, a documentary that I'm a big fan of that you can check out online, Commercial Breaks, which um, if you've never... Have you seen Commercial Breaks? Before? Yeah, yeah, I've seen it. And uh, in our recent talk to Charlie Brooker as yeah. well about Bandersnatch, he, he mentioned how much of an influence this was to Bandersnatch. Yeah, well, Bandersnatch was actually going to be um, what they called the mega games. So this is one of these games that apparently you'd have to have extra hardware for and they're going to retail for a really high price, hype to high heaven, and actually ended up bringing down Imagine Software. And we got the story of these mega games from the man who had the responsibility of marketing these non-existent games, Bruce Everest. You mentioned piracy was such an issue there. Um, was it kind of unstoppable or did you guys try and put any measures in there? 
Oh, we did all sorts. I mean, I don't know if you remember, there was something called lens lock. Yes. <laughs> but that was just one of many, many, many measures. Um, one thing we did, for instance, is we tried to change the way the game loaded. So we made the game so it had a very small header, overwrote the Sinclair loader, and then put our own loader in. And then our own loader did it with a really fancy pattern on the screen, but, but it really didn't answer. So, so then... I was thinking back to my days of doing the, the commercial accounting software. And what they did to protect their accounting software was they supplied a dongle. And the dongle plugged into the back of your, you know, this is big old-fashioned computers, plugged in, basically. And the software wouldn't work without the dongle. So I said to, to David and to Mark, I said what we could do is we could make a, a dongle that plugs into the back of the Sinclair Spectrum, or the, or the Commodore 64 or whatever, and the software goes and looks for the dongle, and it'll only work if the dongle's there. Now, what I thought, what I was thinking of, was maybe a resistor or a capacitor array, which you could read, or, or, or at the very most, a little, a little custom chip that, that you could mass, you know, mass produce very cheaply for pennies. That was my idea. And then what they decided was, Hell, what we can do is we can put 64K of RAM in the dongle and switch it. And suddenly, the, 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 the whole idea exploded like topsy and became the mega games, Cyclops and Bandersnatch. Well, these are the two things that a lot of people remember Imagine for. Those two games that, yeah, like you said, it was... How expensive were they going to be? They were going to be much more than the, the average game. Oh, the game said, I can't remember, was four ninety five or something, and these were going to be 40 or 50 quid because you had to pay for the damn box on the back, you know, the, the dongle with a 64K of memory in. So they took what could have been an idea that might have worked and they just took it to the nth degree when it wouldn't work. Well, like you said, you had the job of doing the marketing here and these games, I mean, I remember seeing those adverts and how hyped they were in the media at the time. And it was, you know, it was really exciting advertising, but it, it kind of felt like you, know, you were promising the world with, with these games that were coming out. I mean, how did you approach marketing these two, like, mega games? Well, blimey. First of all, the guys who were supposed to, they were doing two teams of two, and they weren't doing anything. The guys weren't doing anything. The games weren't being written. So each month came by, and I'd say, what am I going to do? We've got the advertising booked in the magazines. And I said, well, <laughs> you have to go away and think about it. <laughs> so I did adverts like reinforcements arrive when the, the musicians and the artists arrived and things like that. And because I didn't have any, any substance, I had no substance at all. I had, I had nothing. I was, I was just advertising complete vaporware. It didn't, there was nothing there to market. I was, I was marketing nothing. So there was no development or nothing running before it actually got cancelled? There was doing, there was token development, but nothing of substance. So remember these games were going to be much bigger than the average like Spectrum and C64 game. And yeah. they're going to have stuff like, you know, extra stuff in the box and... Um, Essentially, these were going to be like, you know, massive, big budget titles that I, you just couldn't imagine the average kid in like the mid 80s being able to afford. That's true. They've gone a step too far in their ambition, perhaps. And did you try and rein them back in? Were you, was anyone like saying to these guys, this is like not going to work? Or? No, well, I, I worked there, but the, the company was owned by Mark and David. And they thought the success of the company was down to their genius. And that anything they touched and everything they said would turn to gold. So it was very difficult to, to, to actually 
approach them with, with any reality. Well, did you know that Charlie Brooker was going to use um, Bandersnatch for inspiration for his recent Black Mirror movie? I thought that was no, cool. no, 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 I didn't. Yeah. But, uh, but, it, but, it, but it just shows mm. how ingrained in popular culture that marketing was, because there was nothing else except the marketing. I mean, the Brooker thing, all it was about was what was effectively just a piece of marketing. See, that is one thing I really love when we get real stories of, like, legend, or even stuff that's become, like, urban legends in the gaming industry, and you get it from the horse's mouth. Yeah, he's very frank, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Love having Bruce on. Now, Brian Collin, he was an interesting guy. Rampage, that was a legendary arcade game. Yeah, so Brian Collin, um, he was behind Rampage, and that was with Bally Midway, and Bally Midway were the kind of guys that initially they did a lot of pinball games and you know this is fantastic because we're talking about rampage which was a completely huge game but brian really struggled to get it commissioned and this is how he took the idea of a a, a block that you can't kind of move or do anything with how to turn that into a game and also how the change of management helped brian actually get it commissioned i initially hear that um management kind of took a bit of convincing to get the idea of rampage through you know uh, <laughs> monsters tearing up a city yeah that's the understatement that's a massive understatement uh, we uh, were in a meeting after one of these trade shows and uh, i saw some things that other companies were doing with background animation and big characters and i wanted to do big characters i'd done one game with a triple size sprite character that uh, i could really show facial features and comedy i could really show comedy and uh so I, I wanted to do something and I was trying to convince the hardware guys and there's like, no, you can't do anything. We've only got a screen and a half of background for on this hardware. It doesn't uh, scale. There's nothing you can do, Brian. Just get it out of your head. All you can do is, you know, move a rectangle. What are you going to do with a moving rectangle? And I looked at Sharon, one of the other animators, and I said, okay, a building falling into itself. That's a moving rectangle. What knocks down buildings? A giant character, larger than usual. I can sell comedy. Pulled in a couple more people. We all were excited. We said, we've got, in the, in the game original game design document, which usually they were on cocktail napkins, but I actually <laughs> typed one up for this one. I said, this is the story of Rampage or why this is next year's number one game. We all knew it. We all knew we had a hit. Went to our boss and he said, no. Wow. You know, I've, I've got other things going on. So I went to a vice president and uh, he said, hey, no, I like this. I like this. This could be funny. But no. And all of upper management had reasons why we couldn't do it. We couldn't be fighting the police. We couldn't be fighting the army. You couldn't be a bad guy. You can't eat people. I hadn't told them that they were going to turn naked at the end yet. Um, but my programmer I'd been working with on a couple games, uh, Jeff Nauman, he and I went ahead anyway and started proving out the concept. And just, it wouldn't have happened except right around that time, within weeks, all of upper management, the top president and top three, top three guys got let go by Bally Midway. And they brought in a guy from retail who in his initial talk to the troops said, I've got an open door policy. And you can guess who is waiting for him outside his door the next morning at 8.59 a.m. <laughs> and he signed off on it, and it went on to break every record, earnings record of any video game of the time. That was, of course, Rampage. 
Yeah, that was such an interesting episode. Episode number 195 a couple of months ago. Um, yep. Obviously, we'll just put all these full links to the uh, entire episodes if you want to check them out over your Christmas break. Now, one of my favourite shows that we did this year was about a budget label that was massive in Britain here back in the day. And we had Anthony Guterron talking about Mastertronic. Now, they were kind of the kings of budget titles. The games that, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, you go out with your pocket money, a couple of quid in your pocket, and they were the games that you could afford to buy. They had the legendary 199 range. And the problem that they had back then, you've got to think in the 80s, there were so many different platforms. Well, there was also lots of stuff coming from America as well. So there was like US Gold as well and uh, all these different people releasing stuff. I remember Mastertronics did the um, Sega stuff for a while, didn't they? Yeah, they were actually the UK distributor of the Master System when it first came out. It got bought by Virgin in the end. But in this clip here, Anthony's talking about the problem they had. Having so many different platforms, you think of like the Amstrad CPC, the Spectrum, Commodore 64, Commodore 16, MSX for a bit they even covered. So he's talking about the challenges of the 80s platform wars. Well, which were the most important platforms for Mastertronic? Well, the Spectrum. Spectrum and C64 uh, to start with. The C16, funnily enough, took off because we took an interest in it when hardly anybody else did. Yeah. So we, we had amazing sales on the C16 for a couple of years before other people woke up to it. And of course, by then it was probably dying as a machine anyway. Um, we dabbled with everything that we thought we could make money off. So we had a couple of releases for the Dragon, uh, we didn't sell. We had two or three for the Electron, which weren't terribly exciting. You know, you, you, whatever came along, came along, you thought was going to be good, you had to invest in it because you didn't know. And you, know, it, you thought MSX was going to be huge, and it wasn't. Yeah, I mean, like today you bring a game out, you only need to get it on, like, what, two or three platforms, yeah. really? But back then, I mean, was it a challenge having so many different platforms? No, no. It was, uh, we, we rapidly found people who were really good at converting them. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't a big deal. I mean, Spectrum and Amstrad were very similar, mm. same chip anyway. Um, the real problem, I suppose, with converting is that if you have a game written for C64, it probably looks better than can be reproduced on the Spectrum. So very often they had to be recoded or redesigned, and you actually got two different games. You know, if you saw that game on your friend's C64 and then you went, rushed out to buy it for the Spectrum, you'd get something different. I always remember seeing the screenshots on the back of boxes and then, you know, they'd look amazing and then uh, yeah, you get it home and put it in your Commodore 16 and then you notice the... Well, yeah, <laughs> that, was, that was your fault for buying the Commodore 16, with respect. <laughs> That's the trouble. If you read the letters pages, I've done a lot of research reading the magazines in order to get the history, and the letters pages are full of letters from people who always start out, Dear Sir, I am the proud owner of, yeah. insert name of my machine here. And you couldn't get it across to people that... They really, you know, being proud of a machine that wasn't a particularly good spec was, a, was a, a false path. But if you wanted to enjoy this hobby, and bearing in mind all the games were the same price, you should get the best machine you could get. And we used to have these, you know, these furious arguments that still go on between Spectrum and, and C64 owners as to which is the best computer. And I've seen, you know, Spectrum games and the C64 games. There's no arguing about it in my mind. I bought a C64 just before I started Mastertronic based on the reviews, and I used to play the games, and it was obviously a better machine. <laughs> well, we're going to get some tweets now. I'm sure I've offended everybody <laughs> now, but, you know. <laughs> but they also had the disclaimer on the, on the game boxes as well, didn't they? Screenshots may vary. They vary, yeah, well, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm afraid that that's the reality of it. Um, but, you know, if you think about it, we, the inlay, you don't want to start mucking around with lots of different designs for inlays. You, you need to get the inlay off to the printers, and they print. The more they can print of any one type of inlay, the cheaper it is, so you, you use the same screenshots. 
And I'm so glad we did an episode about Mastertronic. That was something I wanted to do for years. So thank you for coming on, Anthony. That was such a good episode. And it's mad to think that you'd have to create one game and port it for about all those different <laughs> systems. Uh, I can't disagree with his comments about the 64. That probably wasn't best, let's be honest. I don't get any more angry tweets. <laughs> now, an episode that we did very recently, in fact, only two weeks ago, but we couldn't leave him out of the best of the year. This is Mr. Charlie Brook. And you're still starstruck, Joe. Yeah, I was pretty starstruck by this one. And he even said, he was like, oh, you're awfully quiet, Joe. And I was just like, <laughs> I'm a little bit nervous, man. <laughs> like, little voice know, in the corner. Little voice in the corner. But yeah, this was absolutely amazing that Charlie Brooker came onto the show for our 200th episode, which is just insane when Dan and Ravi said it was happening. And then it's still insane just to look back on, but it was an absolutely fantastic episode. And I felt like it was like we got to know him Yeah, as yeah. Well. yeah, yeah. And I, I think it's a really open interview. And I think yeah. the, the best thing about it was kind of we've talked to so many people about getting games commissioned, about Games Master, about all the old video game shows on TV and how much they struggled to get a presence, you know, how much they struggled to actually get it big. And when it did get big, like Games Master, it just got dropped afterwards. Yeah. Now, Charlie's managed to get probably the most video game shows commissioned by any single person that I, I know. And we're talking about how he managed to get that kind of idea through, but also the celebrities and the other guys that have gaming ideas and uh, a secret hidden gamers. Instead of reviewing TV shows, I'm just going to do games one week. And I think there was a bit of nervousness about it. And then I think, I can't now remember, but I think it may have been part of the season that they were doing on BBC Four. You had to sort of wait, a bit like a frog waiting, I'm going to use a video game analogy, a bit like waiting at the side of the river in Frogger for a long log to come along. You had to wait for a season to come along that had a sort of technology theme or some sort of leisure theme before they would allow you <laughs> to do something about games. And you did have to spend a lot of time explaining to people that Games aren't for kids, and you know all this stuff. All these conversations that you thought had died out years ago—that you, you know—that's that, sort of quite frustrating. And I remember we so, but they gave us the go-ahead, and it was about forty-five. It was longer than a usual thing. It was like a one-off special. And the other slightly frustrating thing is that I've done two sort of very video game-centric factual entertainment shows. You could say game. I did Games Wipe, and I did which was 20, 2008, and then How Video Games Changed the World, which was a few years later for mm. Channel 4. And in both of them, you kind of feel the need to have to explain what games are to people because there's so few games shows like on TV, which is very odd because, you know, everyone working on the show was basically into games. Our director, Al Campbell, who plays Barry Shitpeas as well, <laughs> um, is massively into games like hugely into get like it was also it was just it was very frustrating so we did a one-off and then the thought was that we were going to I did wonder I did think I don't think I'd be the right person to present that on a regular basis because I sort of felt that should be somebody else like younger or like more than one person but that you could use the same format and the same tone and the same style but they didn't seem that interested in it. I guess, being BBC Four, they had to commission a lot of documentaries about the clash. 
And I'm sure everyone's listened to the full thing. So it was by far our biggest episode of the year. But go back and listen to it again. Wasn't it? I mean, come on, not blowing our own trumpet. I'm blowing Charlie's trumpet here. It was amazing. That didn't sound wrong at all, did it? <laughs> Charlie Brooker, who's on episode 200. If you want to check it out, go back and have a listen over Christmas. Now, this year, we actually got one of my heroes on the Retro Hour. And this was a guy who was behind so many of my favourite games growing up. Now, I've talked before about the pains of being a Commodore Plus 4 owner as a kid and, you know, a system that had been discontinued years before I got it. And you'd have to go into shops and like, have you got any games, sir? (laughs) And they go at the back and get off an old dusty box and stuff. (laughs) But there's one guy who really made that platform sing. And then later on, he did some of the best games on the Amiga as well, stuff like Chaos, the Lotus series best racing games of the era, and this was the legend that is Sean Southern. And in this clip, we had to ask him about the Lotus games. So how did you get the Lotus license? So, I think uh, this was completely down to Gremlin. We, okay. we started doing this game, and it had Porsches in it, and uh, Andrew, he wasn't that miffed, obviously, to, to be told, oh, yes, you can do a game with Lotus, isn't it? It's a proper license, and it should do really well because of it. But he's, he'd drawn all the Porsches. He's got the pictures somewhere. He's probably showed you. But, uh, yeah... He, we, they just changed it for Lotuses, and most of the rest stayed the same. We probably half written the game before they told us. And did you get a Lotus in the end? I didn't, no. <laughs> <laughs> I think Andrew had one. <laughs> did you get to drive any, though, when you make it? Oh, yeah, they, they took, they, we did quite a few things like that. Um, we went to the test track in Norwich on, uh, on one of the days when I think it was about 38 degrees in 1999. or n- No, sorry, 1990, yeah. And, uh, oh... It was so hot, and we were driving around in those things. You could barely see over the windscreen when I'm sitting, and because I'm quite tall, and had to lie back and couldn't see the ground. <laughs> but yeah, we had a, had a drive of them, and I think for other games, I think we sort of did rallying and things later on. Well, did Lotus themselves have any demands or changes they wanted to make on the game? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think they 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 had to approve things. I'm not sure they had any particularly wanted any changes, but they they certainly. Uh, had to like agree that the cars looked correct and all the I think some of the pages had specifications and things on like that. But I'm sure Android do those correctly anyway. Yeah, because I guess you know big brands like that are quite protective about merchandise. I guess aren't they? I think there was another Lotus game a lot later on, wasn't there? So uh, we we didn't have anything to do with that one, but uh, they probably got a lot more input on that one. Well, the series really came into its own with the second game, Lotus Two. Um, what changes did you make there when designing the second game, and how did you want to improve upon the well, first? Well, a lot, a lot of people said uh, when it came out, said that you know why, why did we change the laps and things? But again, this was more making it like Outrun, and I think it, I, I, I always wanted to do the sort of the checkpoint-based thing, just have you run out of time, the next level, and everything, make it more arcadey and. I'm, I'm glad we changed it. I mean, then the third one came out and we'd put everything back in it. <laughs> but uh, I certainly wanted to get all the weather effects and all the different courses because as, as good as I, I like playing the first Lotus one because it's very sort of tense and you've got to plan it and everything, it's nice to have all the new graphics and all the new sound effects and different you know, features in the game. Yeah, and the engine sound effects and that, you know, the checkpoint, that was always like... Really oh, that was Andrew. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, he insisted on doing all the voices. You know, I hope it didn't fanboy too much over Sean in that episode, but it's just somebody who was behind like these games that really shaped my childhood. And I love getting people like that. And also we've had Barry Leach on the show. Yeah. So if, if you want to look back at his, he talks a lot about the sound behind Lotus, which was also such a banging soundtrack. Now, this has been a great year for the podcast. Now, we've got one final clip to play, and this is a very good friend of ours. He's actually going to be joining us for our Christmas stream 
that we're going to be doing at your house actually next weekend. Yeah, so this is Retro Man Cave near Thomas, and actually, it's it's a talk that we never cover on this show, which is simulators, flight sims. Yeah, we, we never talk about simulators, and it's actually really interesting how he's talking about how flight simulators drove technology back then, and I remember. You know, people would run and run the best flight simulators. They'd have huge PCs to run them. And how now it's kind of about first-person shooters. And that's taken the, the benchmark crown from the flight simulators. Well, initially you said that you were doing some stuff about flight simulators. Yeah. In fact, the, the folder in which um, all of my YouTube videos are in are still called FS Chap. That is the folder, as in Flight Sim Chap. I, I don't quite know um, how that name came about. But... Um, yeah, flight simulators have always uh, interested me. I think I've always had an interest for, well, simulations in general, not just um, flight sims. And, um, you know, some of the standout games for me, um, certainly in the 8-bit era, were games like um, Paul Woke's Mercenary. I don't know if you played that one. Um, and even though that was a wireframe 3D game, you you had the the freedom to explore. And it was almost like an, an early sandbox experience, um, if you like. And then you had um, flight sims like uh, F-18 Interceptor on the Amiga, MiG-29 and, and the Falcon series um, after that. And it was just interesting for me, the freedom they gave you and how much they really pushed the system. Um, and they didn't just push the system. I think they also shaped the systems that they were on. Um, for example, Jay Miner, who you all know as, as the father of the Amiga, um, he added ham or, or hold and modify to the Amiga because of his love for flight sims. Um, it, it was a feature in commercial flight sims at the time. So he specifically wanted that in the Amiga for that reason. Um, and uh, Chris Curry from Acorn, um, he said in an interview that he created a computer just because he wanted to be able to fly a flight sim. And when he saw the first flight sim running on an Acorn computer, that's when he considered his machine to be um, to be a success. So um, I think... Yeah, my love of flight sims is just the way that they tie in so much with the hardware um, and the freedom they gave you before sandbox was was a term that was banded about in gaming. And they were um, kind of massively popular. And like you said, they kind of did that hardware drive was to, you know, get the better flight sim and to get it in nice and quality. It really did. They really did. Even um, back when IBM PC compatibles came about, um, back in the 80s, they tested them with um, Lotus 123 and Microsoft Flight Sim. And if it could run those two programs, then it was considered compatible because between them, they really tested the boundaries of the system. Um, so, yeah, they really do push the systems. So with uh, that being said about flight simulators, they're kind of like a lost genre now. Why do you think that is? Well, there's certainly less of them. They're not They're not lost completely. Mm. Um I think Microsoft really screwed the pooch um, when they uh, changed Microsoft Flight Simulator to Microsoft Flight. I don't know if you followed that a few years back. Yeah. And um, yeah, their aim was basically to divide the world into pay-to-play regions where Flight Sim had previously been the entire world. Even if you had to pay for add-on packs to get a bit more scenery and make it a bit more interesting, you could fly around the world. And um, yeah, the, the Flight Sim crowd, I don't think, was prepared to swallow that. So that basically killed the big one, uh, MS Flight Sim. Um, but we've still got things like X-Plane and DCS World is, is an example of a combat flight sim that's pretty incredible in terms of its simulation and its presentation. But um, I think if you really want to push 
our modern PCs, our i7s and um, and our GeForce 1080s or whatever the latest tech is now. Um, yeah, it, it takes a lot of development time to, to really create the modern um, equivalent. And I think when the returns are so much greater for the effort on something like Call of Duty, you know, or the FPSs, I think developers don't really want to put the time, um, the effort or the money into the genre, really, when they can get more returns elsewhere. So, um it's sad. Flight sims deserve their day in the sun again, but um, I don't think we'll ever see those um, those five kilogram big boxes on the shelves again, <laughs> you know, full of manuals and maps. So there you go. A look back at 2019, and I think it's fair to say best year of the podcast yet. What an incredible year we've had. And thank you so much for being there for the last 51 episodes that we've released in uh, in 2019. Next week, then, is going to be our final episode of the year. As you know, before Christmas, we always do something a little special. And that is the Retro Hour Annual Christmas And then we have one week off, guys. Woo-hoo! One Woo-hoo! week out of how many episodes? <laughs> so there won't be an episode released there between Christmas and New Year. But next week, the quiz, which is going to be hosted by Paul Drury from Retro Gamer Magazine and Oliver Wilmot. Um, I'm going to be answering questions, which I must admit, I'm feeling, uh, what's the phrase? Terrified? I think Terrified. might be the phrase. Uh, I was, was going to be like shaking in your boots. <laughs> I'm feeling glad I'm not going to be the worst this time. We'll see. We'll see. You know what? Nobody's <laughs> jinxed it now. Yeah. 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 Touch word, touch word. Dan's just amazing the whole way yeah, through. Yeah, I'm bluffing. Yeah, I get everyone right. <laughs> Definitely not going to happen. It's the mirror but, behind him. <laughs> on that note, I'm going to go home and revise and play like pretty much every retro video game that ever existed for the next week. So we'll see you next week for our Christmas special. Thank you so much for being there in 2019 and join us next week for the quiz. Enjoying the show? Why not check out some other great retro gaming podcasts like Retro Asylum, RGDS, Maximum Power Up, Arcade Attack, Arcade Perfect, and the Ten Pence Arcade. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC. A new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. 
Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM.